Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we conclude our sermon series on the biblical character of Jacob with these questions. Does life sometimes seem like one big wrestling match? Are you winning or losing? Join us for the message, Wrestling with the Face of God. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Does life sometimes seem just to be one big wrestling match? And are you winning or losing? Well, stay tuned for our message later called Wrestling with the Face of God. There are two scriptures, this readings this week, both from Genesis. The first from chapter 32, verses 22 through 32. Listen now to the word of God. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. When I was in college, the rock singer Pat Benatar released her second album, Crimes of Passion. And that album became for me, you know, one of those albums that just for a while became the soundtrack of my life. I remember slipping that cassette into my car's tape deck and then cruising down the highway, singing at the top of my lungs as only a college student brimming with youth can do. <laughs> one of the songs on that album, which became one of Pat Benatar's biggest hits, was the song Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Yes. And it was a defiant anthem to romantic love. You may remember these words. You come on with a come on, you don't fight fair. But that's okay, see if I care. Knock me down, it's all in vain, I get right back on my feet again. Hit me with your best shot, why don't you hit me with your best shot, hit me with your best shot, fire away. Hmm. Well, one day as I listened and sang to the song, this idea just suddenly popped into my head that this was a song that could describe my relationship with God. 
And when you listen to the lyrics in light of a person's relationship with God, then those words can take on entirely different meaning. You come on with a come on, you don't fight fair, but that's okay, see if I care. Knock me down, it's all in vain, I get right back on my feet again. Hit me with your best shot, why don't you hit me with your best shot, hit me with your best shot, fire away. And now I sung this song with even more gusto. I felt like this song represented uh, what I experienced of God up to that point. God comes on with a come on and God does not fight fair. Mm. For me, that come on was an insatiable hunger for God. And I don't know exactly where this comes from. I think I seem to have been born with it. But my entire life, I've wanted to know God and to feel close to God and to do the work of God. And I even felt called to ministry. But then I discovered that my journey to ministry would be blocked for the foreseeable future by the church's prohibition against LGBTQ clergy, and that wasn't fair. So not only then did I get angry at the church, I was angry at God. An angry, defiant song toward God seemed apropos for that phase of my life. Go ahead, God, hit me with your best shot. I was never in fear that I, that I was sacrilegious by singing this song to God because I, I was not raised to fear God in that way, that God was just waiting to, to zap us the moment that we had a wayward thought or an angry word. I've always figured that God preferred for us to be honest and angry and defiant even, as long as we weren't indifferent. And I did care, honestly and passionately and deeply, about my relationship with God, my place in the world, and my place in the church. And you could say that I've spent many years, my whole life even, wrestling with God. Years ago at a retreat, we were asked to think of a Bible passage that, bo that best spoke to our relationship with God. And in it, it didn't take me more than just a few seconds before I thought of the story of Jacob's wrestling match. So that was my definitive Bible story for my spiritual journey. Well, today is the third and final part of a three-part sermon series on Jacob. And as we have discovered, Jacob is one of the most psychologically complex characters in the Bible. Mm -hmm. He can be, be a conniving con man. He was not really a very good son or a very good brother or a very good husband. Later, he wouldn't be all that great of a father. Conflict seemed to follow him wherever he went. And he was smart, but he used his intelligence to take advantage of others. Jacob was also a homebody who was forced, through his own conflict-seeking behavior, forced to travel far from home. And he may have appeared quiet, but Jacob was always thinking ahead, scheming about his next move. So let's review the first two sermons in this series. In the first sermon... We talked about how Jacob's mother, Rebecca, became pregnant with twin boys. And from the very beginning, these boys struggled within Rebecca's womb. Esau was born first, but Jacob came out with his hand firmly grasping Esau's heel. And while Jacob was a homebody, Esau was, the Bible tells us, big and red and hairy. And he would disappear for days at a time out in the wilderness to go hunting. He was impulsive, not particularly articulate. 
He was, you could say, a man of action, not contemplation. Well, as the firstborn, Esau was entitled to what was called the birthright. That is, the right to inherit a double portion of his father's estate. And once when Esau had come in empty-handed from the hunt, Jacob manipulated him into giving up his birthright in exchange for a bowl of stew. Esau was also entitled to his father's blessing. The blessing of the firstborn was given near the end of the father's life, and it bestowed upon the firstborn son the leadership of the extended family. But Jacob collaborated with his mother, Rebekah, to steal the blessing for Jacob by taking advantage of his father Isaac's old age and blindness. So while Esau had gone hunting in order to make his father's favorite meal, Jacob went into his father's tent and pretended to be Esau. He was able to imitate his hairier brother by wearing goat skins on his hands and on his forearms. So Isaac gave Jacob the blessing that was meant for Esau, therefore making Jacob the head of the family. And when Esau found out, he was furious at his brother, vowed to kill him. When Rebekah got wind of Esau's plan, she had her husband Isaac send Jacob to her brother back in Haran in order to find a wife, she said. Well, while on his way, Jacob stopped for the night and had a dream in which God promised to be with Jacob and bring him safely back to the promised land. And when Jacob awoke, he vowed that if God would take care of him and if God would bring him back to his father's house, then the Lord would be his God. And Jacob named that place Bethel, which means the house of God. Now from there, Jacob proceeded to go on to Haran and seek out his mother's brother, who was named Laban. And once Jacob arrived, he stopped at a well and asked some shepherds if they knew Laban. And they said, yeah, we know Laban, and, and here comes his daughter, Rachel. Well, for Jacob, when he saw Rachel, this was love at first sight. He went right up to her, a complete stranger, by the way, and planted a big kiss on her. And then he told her, only after kissing her, that he was her long-lost cousin. And she got so flustered by this that she immediately ran home to tell her father, Laban. And Laban then welcomed Jacob into his home. He asked Jacob what wages he would accept in order to work for Laban. And Jacob offered seven years of labor in exchange for the hand of his daughter, Rachel, in marriage. And the Bible says that Jacob was so in love with Rachel that the seven years seemed to him but just a few days. Well, after the seven years were up, Jacob asked for Rachel to become his wife. And there was a big wedding. Jacob took his new wife, who, by the way, would have been completely veiled, took his new wife into his tent. And when he woke up the next morning, he found not Rachel, but her older sister Leah in his bed. Jacob was not amused. In fact, he was furious at Laban. I do think it's interesting that Jacob fooled his father Isaac through Isaac's blindness, and there the grabber Jacob gets fooled himself by being kept in the dark. Mm -hmm. Well, Laban gave some weak excuse that it was, it was customary to marry off the older daughter first. And Laban said, wait a week, and I'll give you Rachel as well, but you've also got to work with me seven more years to pay for Rachel. So a week later, Jacob married Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. 
And I've always wondered how Leah felt about being probably forced to be part of this deception, being made to share a husband with her younger sister and never feeling loved for herself. I can only imagine how she must have felt that next morning after the wedding, hmm. waking up in bed with her husband and seeing him look at her with disgust. Well, over the years, Leah bore Jacob six sons and a daughter, and both Leah and Rachel gave their handmaids to Jacob, who bore him two sons each. And finally, Rachel herself bore a son, Joseph, and both Laban and Jacob became richer, more wealthy, as a result of Jacob working for Laban, even though, according to the biblical story, they were constantly cheating each other out of their wealth. Well, finally, after 20 years in Haran living with Laban, God told Jacob it was time to return home to the promised land. So he set out with his wives, his children, and his many flocks. Well, remember that it was about 550 miles between Haran and Canaan, the distance between Dallas and Lincoln, Nebraska. He'd already walked this way once before, 20 years before, but this time he had to walk at 20 years older, and leading little children and hundreds of animals. And Jacob still had another challenge. He had to face his brother Esau, who he had deceived and manipulated 20 years before. And as he neared Canaan, Jacob sent messengers ahead to tell, to tell Esau, hey, I'm coming. And the messengers came back and said that, yeah, Esau's coming, and he's bringing 400 men with him. And Jacob went into a panic. He was in no position to put up any kind of fight, and he was never going to be able to outrun Esau and his men. And he feared his family was just going to be slaughtered by this 400 men. He divided the flocks and the people with him into two companies, for he thought that if Esau attacks one of the companies, maybe the other company will be able to escape. Maybe at least half my family will survive. And then Jacob prayed as he had never prayed before in his life. Jacob prayed actually a prayer that in the Bible is the longest prayer um, ever prayed by a, a character with the possible exception of Jesus' prayer to God on his last night with his disciples. And Jacob prayed. Part of his prayer was this. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, and I will do you good. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers, with the children. Yet you have said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. So Jacob reminded God, as, as if somehow God had forgotten this, Jacob reminded God of all the promises that God had made to him. And he appealed to God for the sake of the women and children. And he then took hundreds of animals from his flock and sent them ahead in droves. And he told the servants, the driver of each drove, to go to Esau and to say, These belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Basically, Jacob was just trying to bribe Esau. Though Jacob had the birthright and the blessing of the, of the, supposedly for the firstborn son, which indicated that Jacob would rule over Esau. 
Notice how Jacob refers to himself as Esau's servant and to Esau as his Lord. Jacob came to the river Jabbok, which is a tributary of the Jordan River. It's in the modern country of Jordan. And he sent his flocks and his family on over to the south side of the river Jabbok. And Jacob spent the night alone on the north bank of the river. And then in one of the Bible's most enigmatic episodes, Jacob wrestles with a mysterious man throughout the night until daybreak. As dawn approaches, the man strikes Jacob and dislocates his hip. And he commands Jacob to let him go. But Jacob refuses to let him go until he blesses him. The mysterious man then says, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. So Jacob then asks the mysterious man what his name is, but he refuses to say. Then the man blesses Jacob as the dawn breaks, and this mysterious man departs with the coming of the morning light. Jacob was in amazement, and he exclaimed, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. And he named the place Peniel, which means the face of God. And because of that hip injury, Jacob walked away from his encounter, limping into the light of the morning. Our scripture continues in Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 through 11. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor with my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand. For truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God, since you have received me with such favor. Please accept my gift that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have everything I want. So he urged him, and he took it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. So then, just after his bout with the divine wrestler, Jacob saw his brother Esau coming and putting his family behind him. Jacob comes near Esau. Now, remember, Jacob's got a dislocated hip. 
And yet the Bible says that somehow he managed to bow down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. And then something very unexpected and very remarkable happened. Instead of raising his sword against Jacob in revenge, Esau ran toward his brother and fell on his neck and embraced him and kissed him. And both brothers then wept together as they embraced. And then Jacob introduced his family to Esau. And Esau asked Jacob why he had sent all these gifts. And Jacob answered, to find favor with my Lord. And then, truly, again, a very remarkable sentence. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Notice that Jacob, again, keeps referring to Esau as his Lord. But Esau refers to Jacob as my brother. Jacob, however, insisted that Esau keep the gifts and said, No, please, if I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand. For truly, to see your face is like seeing the face of God, hmm. since you have received me with such favor. Last week, we talked about Jacob's exit from the promised land and his dream at Bethel of the stairway to heaven. And this week, we're reading and exploring about Jacob's re-entry into the land here at Penuel and his wrestling match with this mysterious man. And in both instances, as Jacob leaves the promised land and as Jacob comes back to the promised land, Jacob spends a night by himself there in the wilderness, frightened, vulnerable, and alone. And he either has a dream or what seems like a very dreamlike experience that communicates grace and leaves him transformed. And yet, while the dream at Bethel results in a direct promise from God, Jacob's wrestling experience is ambiguous in its meaning. Mm -hmm. Who is it exactly that Jacob is wrestling? Mm -hmm. Jacob's been surrounded by conflict his entire life. His wrestling started in the womb. Mm -hmm. First, he wrestled with his brother. Uh, then he was the cause of conflict between his parents. He spent years cheating and being cheated by his uncle Laban. His wives were in conflict with each other and with their husband. Is he wrestling with Esau, with Laban? Is he wrestling with his self and his own guilt? And in the end, is he really wrestling with God? Or is it all of the above? By the end of the night, Jacob believed that it was indeed God with whom he has striven. And he has believed that he has seen God face to face. During the conflict, Jacob the grabber grabs hold of God. And just as he held fast to Esau's heel, he refused to let go of God without a blessing. And so this mysterious figure gives Jacob a new name, Israel, which means one who struggles with God. And if you think about that, the first time I learned what the actual word Israel meant, I was so struck by that, that these people, these ancient Israelites, would call themselves the people who struggle with God. And in a way, all the conflict, all the struggles of Jacob's life have really been a struggle with God. And yet God gives Jacob a blessing as well. 
Wrestling with God, however, leaves Jacob wrestling, excuse me, walking with a limp. When you encounter God, it can change the way you walk. In writing about this passage, John Wesley noted that the touch of God can both wound and heal. Jacob is physically diminished, but left spiritually blessed. In her book entitled Still, the writer Lauren Winner relates the story of what a pastor father said to his daughter the night before her confirmation into the church. You see, being only 12 years old, she didn't really feel like she was ready to take vows where she promised to believe the Christian faith for the rest of her life. But her pastor father very wisely responded to her by saying, what you promise when you are confirmed is not that you will believe this forever. What you promise when you are confirmed is that this is the story you will wrestle with forever. I think that is incredibly wise. And I believe God welcomes the struggle, God welcomes the wrestling, all this strife that humans provide. You see, God is willing to get down in the dirt with us and to struggle with us for what it means to live a life with God God welcomes the questions and the doubts, the successes and the failures, because God prefers passionate followers over lukewarm dilettantes. As Christ said to the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Very graphic. We're born into grace, we live in grace, and we die in grace. As we've talked about so many times before, God first reaches out to us in provenient grace. And when we say yes to God, then justifying grace offers us salvation. And in grateful response, we then grow in sanctifying grace. And it is this stage of grace, this stage of sanctifying grace... This is the stage that requires our most cooperation. Sanctification requires our willingness to struggle and to strive to take hold of God and never let go and to take hold until the blessing is ours. Sanctification and all the accompanying struggle that goes with it is what Paul had in mind when he wrote in his letter to the Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And in his book, James advises us to draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Now, most of us, however, haven't had an experience of wrestling with God exactly like Jacob did. For most of us, when we struggle with God, we're almost always also struggling with other people. More than any other person, Jacob has struggled with Esau. And the struggle started before they were born. And by the last time he saw Esau, Esau was breathing threats of murder against Jacob. Because Jacob has managed to trick Esau out of every advantage he would have had as the firstborn son. And Jacob expects Esau to want to exact revenge because that is what Jacob would do if the roles were reversed. 
Yet Jacob is once again surprised by grace as Esau runs toward his brother, embracing him in his arms, weeping. You know, we don't know what has happened in Esau's life during these 20 years that Jacob has been away. But it's evident that grace has also touched Esau's life. Instead of holding on to his rage, instead of letting his past determine his future, Esau has elected to let the bitterness go and to rejoice in the present. And so Isaac's, their father's, blessing for Esau has come true. Because remember, as we read two weeks ago, that Isaac said to Esau after Jacob stole the blessing, By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. But when you break loose, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And Esau has indeed broken loose from the yoke of Jacob, but not in the way that we might expect. Esau has broken the yoke by choosing not to be enslaved to bitterness and vengeance. Hmm. Esau has chosen the freedom that comes from forgiveness that we offer to those who have wronged us. Though Jacob may have taken his birthright and his blessing, in the end, Esau has received a truer blessing and a far richer inheritance. And in contrast, though Jacob has been surrounded by grace his entire life, that grace struggles to make an impact on his heart. He's been chosen from the womb, yet he constantly resorts to trickery and deception, first with Esau, then with his father, and then with his uncle Laban, in order to prevail. When God makes an unconditional promise to Jacob at Bethel to be with him wherever he goes, Jacob responds with a very conditional vow to worship the Lord as God only if the Lord provides for him and brings him back to the promised land. After wrestling, though, with this mysterious figure throughout the night, Jacob declares, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. And then later, when Jacob sees Esau, he declares, for truly your face, your face of forgiveness, your face of grace, your face of love, seeing the face of Esau is like seeing the face of God since Esau has received him with such favor. In the end, it's through Esau's act of forgiveness that we most clearly see the face of God. We see what God looks like, for it's ultimately in such acts of grace that God's image is made most manifest. And just as Jacob reflected God back, excuse me, just as Esau reflected God back to Jacob, we are called to reflect God and to be the body of Christ out in the world. As the saying goes, we may be the only gospel that some people ever read. So to conclude our look at the life of Jacob, believe in God's grace because you are surrounded by it. And then live your life as if you truly believed in this grace. Realize that God works through flawed individuals and flawed families, which means particularly pretty much all of us. Know that reconciliation and forgiveness is always possible and that it is indeed the path to liberation. Remember that God prefers a passionate struggle to a lukewarm faith. And finally, be the face of God in the world. Pray that the world will always 
be able to see the face of God in you. Amen. And so now we, 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 I ask that you please receive this benediction. Go forth with the blessing of the one who brings us through the wilderness, the one who greets us face to face. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we begin a new sermon series and a new church season as we welcome the arrival of Advent. We'll be exploring Jesus' female ancestors in our next series, Harlots in the Holy Family. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.